Well, first of all, can I just say a huge thank you for having me. It, is, um, it really is a privilege to be with you guys all um, this afternoon. I'm going to get that wrong because we meet in the morning, and so I'm probably going to say this morning a lot, even though it isn't. But you know, you know what I mean, don't you? Um, Owen and Jenny, we love you guys, um, and, and I just, I'm so blessed by your faithfulness and your consistency and, and your love for Jesus. So thank you for inviting me. Uh, Owen asked me just to say a little bit about who I am. Um, so I am, I'm Tom, I lead a church called Grace, which is in South Wales. We live in a, a little town called Porthcawl, which you wouldn't, probably wouldn't know unless you are a surfer or an Elvis Presley fan. Uh, those are the two things that our town is known for. Uh, we, we have got seven wonderful beaches uh, and apparently the best surfing beach within three hours drive of London. Uh, and we host the world's largest Elvis Presley festival. Um, so that is my town in a nutshell. It's a great place to live, as you can probably guess. I've been there for the last 17 years. I've lived in Wales for about 21 years, 22 years or so. So I'm very nearly accepted. I almost got the passport. I'm, I'm still not as Welsh as Owen, um, but, but I can try. Uh, however, as, as um, I think Will was asking me earlier on, I still do support England when England are playing Wales in the rugby. I thought that might get me a little bit of favor this afternoon, so thank you. I'm married to Laura. Uh, we've got two kids, Patrick, who is um, 14, and who now, I mean, this is, this is tough on me, is now towering over me, which is just a hard time. I can still beat him in a wrestling match, but he's there, and it's, um, it, it comes to us all, I suppose. And I've got a daughter who is nine and is down there, who kind of still makes me feel young um, at times. So, um, so that's my family. We are part of Advance. Uh, our church um, has been in Advance for the last five, six years, maybe even more. I've kind of lost count. Um, and that's how we get to be linked to you guys. And, and honestly, it is such a privilege for us as a church to be connected to you and to so many churches all around the world. It's, it's exciting, isn't it, to be part of a, a movement of churches that is passionate about Jesus and his gospel. Um, and so part of that has meant you've seen me on a screen, um, for which I'm sorry, uh, but I am grateful for your prayers. Uh, you've been praying for us as a church. You've particularly prayed a few times for our building needs. We've, um, we've got a, a building which probably you could fit our whole building into this kind of section of your building here. Uh, and so it is cozy, to say the least. We're practically sat on each other's laps on Sunday mornings. So do keep praying for us. We're grateful for that. Well, anyway, um, enough said about us. I, I want to dig into God's Word and think a little bit about John chapter 12. That's where we're going this morning. In just a few moments, we're going to read John chapter 12, starting at verse 1 and going down to verse 11. Jim Elliot, the missionary, um, famously said, you've probably heard this quote numerous times, he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In a sense, it's, it's almost like a, the Christian life in a nutshell, isn't it? If you trust Jesus Christ, you have all things in him. And therefore, to give your life away is a no-brainer. And yet we live in a world that tells us just the opposite of that. Um, you mentioned earlier, Owen, this, this word, secure, feeling secure. And it's almost as if the world around us is telling us every day of our lives, you've got to get secure in your life. 
You want to make sure your finances are secure and you're taken care of in your old age. Make sure your health is secure. Make sure your friendships are secure. Pursue your own personal security at all costs because you are the center of the world. That's very much the world that we live in, isn't it? And yet what Jesus comes and says to the church is a, a radically alternative course of action. In fact, what he has to say is, you are already secure. And so in the light of the security that you have in him, live a life of freedom. An outgoing, outgiving life because you have security. That's where we're going today in a nutshell. And I know that you guys are coming into a series thinking about what it really means to be devoted to Jesus. And so I kind of want to preempt that by asking a couple of pretty fundamental questions for you, for your church, like how do you give your life to Jesus and his church? How do you give away your everything without losing your life. Looking around, I'm going to guess some of you have been in church for a few years. Um, That's probably a safe guess, isn't it? Um, and so chances are, if I asked you this morning to put your hands up, if you've ever got fed up with church, there's going to be a fair few hands going up. You don't have to, but that's just my guess. If I ask, have you got tired of being committed to church? Have you grown weary in loving Christians? Has there come a time where you've just said, oh, I can't be bothered anymore? I'd like a lie-in on a Sunday morning, right? If you've ever got to that place, chances are you're not alone. And you know, you've probably, like me, watched preachers literally run out of steam, I mean, they've just been extraordinary. And then there's come a moment where you've watched them in the pulpit, and it's almost like someone's popped the balloon, and the air just disappears out of them. They've run out of energy. I found myself there. Probably as you've served Jesus, you found yourself there as well, just running out. How do you give your everything when that's our human nature? So that's where we're going. How do I give my time when it's precious? When I want to do all sorts of things with it. How do I give my emotional energy when I'm frankly just exhausted? How do I give my worship when my heart is distracted by a hundred commitments and obligations and worries and concerns? How do I give my money when the world tells me to keep it? And underlying all of those questions is another question. And it's less about what you do and how you're using your resources, and it's more about what's going on in your heart. What kind of generosity exists in here? So here's the, my notes say here's the Ottoman line. Uh, It should be here's the bottom line. I don't know what an Ottoman line is. It may be a thing, it may not be. But here's the bottom line. As always, and I love that it's your vision statement, it comes down to knowing Jesus, doesn't it? Here's the bottom line. Jesus calls us into a relationship with him that liberates us. Knowing him frees us to give away our lives, knowing that he's given us his life. The kind of generosity that he has shown to you 
and to me. It, it just rubs off eventually. It kind of gets into the system and flows out. So let's read, shall we? I want to open up um, John chapter 12, verse 1 to 11. Um, we'll, we'll start with verse 1 to 8, and maybe we'll get to 11. But it's this incredibly beautiful story of how a transformed person is freed to give away their life. So I tell you what, let's read it together, shall we? John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who reclined with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So it's the story of a number of different people, but there are two main characters in it. And it is set six days before Passover. Not any Passover, the Passover where the Lamb of God is to be slain, where Jesus is going to give up his life for his people. And as John tells his story, with this extraordinary act of the pouring out of the lifeblood of Jesus in view, Jesus comes to Bethany. Bethany, you may know as the hometown of Jesus' friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. These are kind of some of his closest people, and it's where they live. It's not far from Jerusalem, so it's an ideal stopping place for Jesus on his final journey into Jerusalem. Now, at this point in the story, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Go back um, into the previous few chapters and you see the story unfolding. Lazarus, this friend of Jesus, was dead completely and utterly. And Jesus has raised him out of the grave into new life. And so, and I love the way John puts it, because Jesus raised him from the dead. Now look at this. Look at verse 2. And because of that, so... They gave a dinner for him there. It seems to be the most understated celebration of the most extraordinary act you can imagine, doesn't it? I mean, it's literally the man was dead, now he's alive. Oh, let's have a dinner. It sounds like it, it could have been set in Buckingham Palace itself, doesn't it? Wonderfully understated. But for all of that, it is an, an eventful dinner. It's held, the other gospel writers tell us, at the house of Simon, who was a leper. And so immediately there's something interesting going on in the background. The man whose house they dwell in was at one point feared, hated, cast out, and alienated. No one would have gone to his house. No one would have gone near him. And now here there is a party taking place. Now he's at a table with friends. 
And I just love the beautiful story going on here, that Jesus has poured his life into Simon, touched him, healed him. And now the man who was a loner is hosting parties. And I just, just for a moment, imagine what the conversation would have been like around this table between Lazarus and Simon. Just imagine it. I guess it would have been a, a bit like Jesus' top trumps. I don't know if anyone ever played top trumps when you were younger. Uh, I remember in school we had, um, it was either steam train top trumps or sports car top trumps. That was about as, as good as it got. And you would compare your cards with the guy sitting across from you. And whoever had the best card got the other card. You know how it works. Well, I imagine it was a bit like this, comparing notes on what Jesus has done in their lives. Well, as that happens... Martha's serving the table. You probably remember the story from, um, from Luke 11 where Martha is busy serving Jesus and gets cross at Mary because she's not helping out. Well, that's the same Martha here who, again, is just doing what she does so well, serving the table. And they're all sat eating. And just imagine the awe that is hovering over that table. One man who literally had no life. He was dead and in a tomb. Another man who, for all it, it was worth, had no life. He might as well have been dead. He was an outcast and hated. At that table, in the presence of Jesus, everything is history because of his power over death. He's changed their lives forever. Just to imagine what they're saying. The, the one guy's like, well, guys, I, this was me. I was a leper. No one loved me. No one touched me for years. And then Jesus comes and physically touches me. Can you imagine what that feels like? And Lazarus is like, well, that's nothing. Should have seen what happened to me. This is what Jesus does. And then into that context comes another character. And this is where John really focuses our attention. Mary. Verse 3. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment. She's a woman who is utterly devoted to Jesus. And she does something utterly shocking. She takes a pound of expensive perfume made from pure nard. Now, um, that might not sound particularly appealing. I can't help but think of lard. Whenever I read this, it's always been the same. Um, but it is not that. She's not rubbing lard on the feet of Jesus. It's perfume. And... Um, in fact, the next major character in the story is going to tell us just how precious this perfume is. Judas will in a moment tell us it's worth 300 Roman denarii or a year's payment for a farm laborer. So let's zoom in on Mary just for a minute and what's going on in her? What changes in her? What causes her to live this life of radical, unexpected, outgiving generosity towards Jesus? And I hope that this, this afternoon, it's going to encourage you to see and feel all the more that Christ calls you to pour out your life. And that is not a burdensome thing. Because I don't know about you, but so often we get that into our thinking, don't we, as Christians? The Christian life becomes a list of burdensome obligations. 
And even as you guys set into a series in a few weeks' time about being devoted to Jesus, that can sound like a burdensome thing. But I want you to see in the heart of this woman and her precious act of service, there is nothing burdensome. There's no obligation. There's no kind of heavy religious duty going on here. No one's told her to do what she does. And so I'd I'd love us just to get kind of two big things as we zoom in for a moment. First up, the value of her offering. It's an average year's wage. Um, Now, this is not an exact comparison. We don't have many farm laborers where we live, and so I don't know what a farm laborer earns these days. But the average British salary apparently, so I'm told, stands at about £32,000 per year. That may be a little bit inflated by some who earn crazy amounts of money. I don't know, but that's the average. What Mary does is extraordinary. That's the first thing. It's just an incredible amount of money. The second thing is this. Mary is in what some would regard as an incredibly perilous situation. Look at Mary. What does this kind of money mean to her? She's got no husband, no inheritance. Presumably, she's got no land, no property. She's an unmarried woman. And I mean, that doesn't sound uh, unusual to us. But in Jewish culture, that meant essentially you've got no future. You're almost disregarded as hopeless. That's Mary's life. She's not in a position to be pouring out her wealth. Okay, people around her are going to be saying, Mary, you need to look after yourself. You need to hold on to what you've got and try and get more. It's the world around us, isn't it? It's what we hear every day. Oh, you need to hold on to what you've got and get more. But that isn't what's going on in the heart of Mary. And that isn't what goes on in the heart of someone who really knows Jesus. It's what she does is just incredible. Maybe you feel what people thought she should feel. Maybe you feel you're not in a position to be devoting your life to Jesus, to give your life to him. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you'd say, I'm too young, too old. I'm too committed to other things. I'm too tired. I'm too burnt out on life. I have too little. All of those things people would have been saying to her. And so how much more surprising, shocking is what happens? Well, the answer is this. Let me just give you a glimpse of how shocking what goes down at this dinner table really is. See, if you go back to the start of chapter 11 in John's Gospel, where John introduces Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, here's the crazy thing. He doesn't need to introduce Mary. That might seem irrelevant, but it really isn't. Why? Well, in chapter 11, when um, John, the gospel writer, is telling us about this little family, the brother and two sisters, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he doesn't introduce, he doesn't need to explain who Mary is. He just says this. This is the same Mary who anointed Jesus with ointment. In other words, by the time John writes down this gospel so that people could see and believe who Jesus is, by the time he writes it down, here's the stunning thing. What Mary did is more talked about than what happened to Lazarus. 
I mean, isn't that bonkers? Seriously. We're told in a few verses later that because of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, the Jewish authorities set out to try and kill Lazarus. I mean, what happens to him is a big deal, and yet what Mary does sends reverberations because it is shocking. People can't believe it. Everyone's talking about it. They're like, did you see how reckless this woman was with what she owns and what is hers? With her very life, she's just pouring it out at the feet of Jesus. I mean, it's crazy. It's what the world is talking about. She pours out 32,000 pounds. Her fortune, her security, all upon Jesus' feet. Now, the the actual going down of this event is probably less strange than it sounds to us, apart from the amount. Oil would normally have been put on the head of a visitor, probably not a whole jar full, but a little bit. It's kind of a, a sign of welcome, anointing. It's saying, you are precious to me. But the feet would have been washed, and they would have been perfumed. And so what happens here isn't that unusual. It's just an extreme example of how a a precious visitor would have been welcomed, treated. You know, uh, maybe, maybe this is just us, but do you have good crockery? Anyone here have good crockery? You know, the stuff you, you reserve for royalty or, or kind of important people? We've got it's just me. We, we've got good crockery, right? And we got it for our wedding. And because we got it for our wedding, it's like we can't use that. We've got to use just the, the Argos stuff for every day, right? And, and so we've got this crockery that we use pretty much for Christmas. And that's about it. Birthday parties, maybe. It's stupid, isn't it? What a stupid thing to do. And yet we do. We roll out the red carpet when people who really matter to us come to the house. I mean, we clean places that we never would normally clean. And, and we maybe even shop in Waitrose. That's how good it gets. We, I know, if they're really important. Just because we love them and we want to welcome them home. Well, this is that times a thousand. Mary's just saying to Jesus, you are everything. More precious to me than my own life and my own security. But not what happens next. What happens next is like a step beyond. Did you see where it went from there? In verse 3 still. And she wiped his feet with her hair. So much so that just the aroma of her hair filled with perfume and perfume running down Jesus' feet, it just fills the whole house, John says, as he could only say as an eyewitness. I mean, it's just, it's inappropriately intimate, isn't it? If you didn't know this, a Jewish woman would not unbind her hair in public. It just wasn't done. It was, it was seen as somehow beyond the pale. Shameful. Mary doesn't care. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. She's got the perfume. She's got nothing to wipe Jesus' feet with. So, hey, my hair will do. She unbinds it and just starts to wipe his feet. She doesn't care that it's shameful. Doesn't care that people are going to gossip about her. She breaks all good sense and etiquette. She is reckless in her devotion to Jesus. Reckless regarding her reputation, reckless regarding her wealth, 
reckless regarding her future. She doesn't care what she's giving up. Why? Because she's honoring the savior of her life with her life, with her pride, with her everything. You know, this would have been the job of a servant, but she doesn't care. She gets to bask in the love and glory of the King of Kings. The one she knows has come from God and is God. Now, here's the crazy thing. I said a little bit earlier that she's in a kind of precarious situation. Some might say, Mary, your life is perilous. She's got no husband. Her brother, who should look after, has recently died. Who knows what his health is going to be like from here on? Will it happen again? Her life seems perilous. Add to that the fact that she has committed her life to following a penniless teacher who's already said he's going to die. (laughs) But do you know, here's the astounding thing. She doesn't find her security in what she has, but in Jesus. She gets this, that her life, in fact, is far from perilous. It's not shaky at all. Not remotely. (laughs) In fact, she's given everything to the one who owns everything. What could be a more sure investment than that? People talk a lot, don't they, about um, Bitcoin. I just have to confess, I know nothing about Bitcoin or any of those sort of things. It's just an alien world to me. People talk about it and, and it just kind of goes, whoosh. I have no idea. But I do know this. On my phone, quite regularly, little flashes come up and they tell me Bitcoin has gone down. The next day, Bitcoin has gone up. There are no certain investments in this life but one. And Mary has chosen it. As Luke tells us in his gospel, Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen to invest her life in Jesus, to lay her life at his feet. She's poured out her life to the one who has and will eternally pour out his life for her. You see, when her life seemed over, and it must have done, right? When Lazarus died, her life must have seemed over. When her life seems over, Jesus steps in and he wins. See, she's in no peril because her life is in the hands of his mighty hands. Here's the thing. You know, the more we give to him, the more we find that everything we have is his anyway. People say you can't outgive God. They normally mean that about cash, and that's certainly true, but you know it applies to all of life. When you give your life to him, you find he's already given it all to you, both your life and his life. He's generously given us our breath, our wealth, our lives. It's all his, and yet he's given us still more. Paul says in Romans, that he makes this astounding statement that he did not spare his only son. God did not spare his only son for you, no, but he gave him up for all of us. And he adds this, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, when you get who God really is and what his character is like, and you place your life in his hands, you find that 
whatever you give up, your life is no more secure than when you, when you are empty-handed and in his hands. So I, I, I want to carry on and kind of start to pull a few things together. But Judas is the second main character in this story. Interestingly, we don't hear a word from Lazarus. I mean, this is crazy. He's been dead, now he's alive. You'd think John would want us to hear something from him. No. We're given Mary and Lazarus. They're there almost as like these kind of opposite extremes of how you can live, one or the other. Judas has a very different perspective on what goes down at the house of Simon. You see, she knows that to give all things to the one who gives all things to her is the only logical conclusion, right? It's the only sensible course of action. She knows that no matter how perilous her outlook seems, and we may feel the same. I I don't know many of you, but I imagine in this room there are lives that right now feel perilous. There are situations where you feel this just feels way out of control. Yet all the world is God's, and he shares it with her. She'll never go without. Jesus is committed now and for all eternity to pouring his life out for you. And that's what the Bible tells us. It wasn't a one-off thing at Calvary that Jesus did for you. No, every day, through all eternity, he is pouring his heart out, interceding, praying for you, lifting your name up before the throne of God. You are held secure this afternoon. Even right now, as I'm speaking, you are held secure before the throne of God by Jesus. He's pouring his life out for you. Your life is secure in his hands, whatever's going on today. That's where Mary's at. And Judas sees this going on, and, sh- and he is just horrified. In his eyes, this makes no sense. It is mad. This could feed the poor, he says. Now, he doesn't mean it. You know that. It sounds good. She, he's looking at her. I mean, she's doing the equivalent of taking 50-pound notes and just setting fire to them, one after the other, just burning money. She's never going to see it again. And Judas is just looking on open-mouthed, thinking, what are you doing, Mary? This is crazy. But it's all posturing. He just wants the money himself. Money's needed, says Judas. We've got to store it up. We've got to gather it in. We've got to make our lives secure. Right, So you get the contrast between these two characters. The one saying, my life is secure because I've met Jesus and my life is in his hands. The other saying, no, I've got to make my life secure. It's the difference between whether your life is centered on Christ or whether it's centered on yourself. Whether you're trusting in him or whether you're trusting in yourself. One looks perilous but is absolutely secure. The other looks pretty legit, pretty secure, but actually is falling apart. And here's the heart of it all. Judas, for all of his words, is busy worshipping another god. He's poured his life out at the altar of materialism. He's not really received the mercy of Jesus. 
He hasn't engaged with the all-giving love of God that is right in front of him. That's so easy, isn't it? I don't know how many of you in this room maybe grew up in church. And you can sit in a seat with Christians all day long for 20, 30, 40 years. And here's the tragedy that Jesus, Judas, brings to us, that you can sit in that place looking on grace and mercy in the face of Jesus and not get it. And still think, no, it's all about me and I've got to make my life secure. And Jesus is there saying, just trust me. I'm going to pay for your guilt and your sin. And I'm going to hold your life all the way through, even to death and beyond for eternity. Just trust in me. But Judas can't do that. He just can't let go of his life. He thinks he's got to make it secure. Where Mary's heart in opposition to that, is turned outwards. It's open, it's receiving and giving. It's free. You see, his heart, Judas's heart. In fact, any heart that hasn't been deeply humbled by the generosity of God, any heart that's like that cannot give freely. It can't give recklessly, faithfully, expectantly. It just can't, like Mary does. By the way, what, what happens here, as a, an aside comment between Judas and Mary, should make us as Christians very, very cautious when criticizing another believer. Because I don't know if you saw, everything Judas says is absolutely true. He speaks utter truth. He doesn't lie. And yet, where it comes from is utterly dark. We can speak words that are true as believers to other believers. And yet where they come from is not from a good place. The words of Judas just cause us to kind of check ourselves. That, that this isn't just about a generosity of what I give. It's a generosity of heart that comes from knowing Jesus. And now I, I want to kind of come to finish with this. Look at how Jesus responds. He says... To Judas, leave her alone. Judas's question is kind of a thinly veiled attack on Mary. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, that can't happen, right? She's poured it all out. What does Jesus mean here? What he means is this. That Mary's lavish outpouring literally of everything she owns, of all of her security and her life, and her worship at the feet of Jesus is a kind of fitting tribute to what is about to happen at Passover. It's like a, a symbolic foreshadowing of the lavish outpouring that is about to come at Calvary in just a few days' time. What she does, Jesus is saying, is a fitting, measured response to what he is going to do. Friends, when you come to Calvary, you see face to face Jesus' love for you. What he's prepared to do to make your life secure. When you come to that place, you see the love of God for you in action. Giving away your life is tiny. Giving up your security is a small thing. And I fear for myself and maybe for you as well. 
The reason my heart often is so reluctant to pour itself out at the, heart, at the feet of Jesus is because I've really failed to grasp the enormity of his love for me, what he did for me, what he does for me, how he feels towards me. You know, it's so easy to kid ourselves, isn't it? I've been in and around the church for just over half of my life. I wasn't brought up as a Christian. I didn't, wasn't brought up going to church. Um, but I've been around the church for over half my life. And, and it is easy to kid yourself. It's easy to learn the theology and read the latest books. And yet when someone like Mary comes along, someone who has real spirituality, who has really laid a hold of Jesus, it's easy to raise our eyebrows like Judas and say, what are they doing? We're inside. We're just reluctant. Look, I, I want to kind of bring this to a close. The heart of everything I've got to say today is ultimately this. How deep does your encounter with Jesus really go? I mean, do, do you get this morning his outstanding, overwhelming generosity to you? And do you get that because of that, your life is eternally secure in him? Maybe for some of you, you've been a Christian for a long time and you just feel that at some point you've run out of steam. Maybe some of you are running hard, but you know that inside you're just feeling a little bit exhausted. Some of you maybe are fed up with other Christians. Some of you maybe are tired of leading, tired of leading home groups, kids' ministries, or some other area of church life. Maybe some of you are just fed up with the commitment. You've been doing it your whole life, and you're just feeling, oh, I'm just a bit tired. Maybe some of you have backed off a little bit from Jesus and his mission. You're no longer passionate like you used to be about the gospel and bringing it into the world around you. Some of you, you've just slowed down. The air's gone out of you. Well, I want today... As I come to close, to see in the life of Mary, as she gathers around this table, what happens when you come back to Jesus and love him more than anything else. I can't, you know, I can't help but think that around this table, by the way, it's not just Simon and Lazarus and, and Mary and Jesus and Judas, that all the disciples are there and maybe others, but I can't help but think that somehow around this table, there is just this kind of symbolism of Christian life. Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead, that's what Jesus does in us. Simon, who's been brought from being alienated into fellowship with God and his people. That's happened to you, you know. God's brought you home to knowing him, to being a friend. Mary. Mary, who is loved, whose life is made secure. Friends, this is what Jesus has done in you, if you know him. He's put your feet on a rock. And when you love him more than anything else, and you love his mighty works, and his cross becomes this unshakable reference point in your life, and tells you your life cannot be broken. You cannot lose, no matter what you lose. It leads you to this place of saying, Jesus, have it all. So we're going to respond 
by coming to the table and sharing communion together, these symbols of the life and the love and the death and the blood of Jesus that tell us your life is secure. As we gather around the table, we find that we are held, you and I, all the way through our lives. We're held that we might give it all. And so as we come to the table, we find blood poured out. And we find that we too can pour out our lives. So I wonder, maybe you just bow your heads with me for a moment. We're going to respond. Maybe to some this afternoon, maybe you've never really come to a place of laying your life at the feet of Jesus like Mary does. You're striving to find security in life and just can't find it anywhere. And he says, come to me. Lay down your life and live. Give it up and find life in all of its abundance in me through my death and resurrection. Maybe just as we close, there's a moment for you to say, Lord, my life, I pour out at your feet. And to others, maybe you're feeling, yes, I am exhausted. I'm tired. I'm worn out. The idea of giving more just seems burdensome. I just want you simply to gaze on the face of Jesus. Look to him. See how he's loved you. See how even today he gives you your breath. He pours out his life for you. Your life is secure. And what you give, he will return a hundredfold. How you pour out your life today. Oh, don't worry about being in a perilous situation. He will pour his life into you as he always has done. And so, Lord, today we just offer you our lives. As we gather around your table and we see your love, we simply declare, Lord, we love you. And we offer you all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.